bum bum bottom 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 bum
it was an emotional relief. It was absolutely an emotional relief. And it signified that this very weird year is coming to an end. There is hope now. We're starting to go out into the world and experience things again. I told myself, we told each other, we were going to take it easy. Uh-huh, we were going to uh-huh. ease our way back out into the world. But then I went out to dinner with two of my girlfriends. The next day, I went out to lunch with another one of my friends. And then we went to the movies with Darren yeah. from the In the Mouth of and Darkness podcast. And it was podcast. an extremely emotional experience. It was. But then Monday rolled around and I'm like, I am so spent. Yeah, and I, I have like, exhausted all of my social energy. Too bad, Lisa, because I've just scheduled two interviews <laughs> for the website Monday and Tuesday and a guest appearance on the Funny Science Fiction podcast. So we have been burning the midnight oil podcast-wise. And because we've been doing that, we've sort of been neglecting recording this episode. And that was also a little torturous because we just started Fantastic Four Talk and we're so high on Sue and Reed and we had delayed the recording of this episode. But it's okay. We're here now. We're back in the thick of it with Marvel's first family. And I love it. The lesson learned is we got to take it easy on ourselves. There's going to be a lot more demand of our time, all of which we enjoy. I love seeing my friends and I love doing interviews, but there's only so many hours in a week and there's only so many spoons in my drawer. Well, and this transitional period of coming out of lockdown should be a gradual process. And I think this week we were like, we're out, let's do it. Well, it's hard because I'm an obliger. (laughs) So when people come to me with invitations, I'm like, yes, of course, this makes us both feel great. Yeah, and and even though I'm a rebel, uh, I am also the type of person that learned a lot from reading William Shatner's autobiography. And he said, you say yes to everything. (laughs) And I want to say yes to everything. I think you heard, let's take it easy. And your brain goes, (laughs) no, of course not. I'm not going to take it easy. Yeah, let's pedal to the metal. (laughs) But it's been a crazy exciting time here at Comic Book Couples Counseling. We've really gotten back to the website and we've put a lot of new articles up there, lists, recommendations, lots of goodies. Please go visit comicbookcouplescounseling.com. This episode you're listening to right now is actually episode 99. But Brad, the episode number says 66. Longtime listeners know that we deal with legacy numbering (laughs) here, and this is actually episode 99, which means that next week's episode on Fantastic Four Civil War will be episode 100. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the way we celebrate it is we went out and commissioned a really rad show poster from artist Josh Cornellan. He has done this homage to Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four number one. We haven't even revealed it yet to you guys, and we're going to drop it probably after we drop this episode, so pay attention to our Twitter and Instagram feeds. Some of them have seen it. Our our, Patreon subscribers. Yes, they've seen it. Uh, They love it. We love it. I was emotional seeing how Lisa and I were incorporated into Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four number one. It's really special. It's a dream come true. So yeah, episode 100. Ah! 
Yeah, it's here. Amazing. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Brad, because Reed and Sue are in the waiting room. They're flipping through old magazines, and we're going to need some context before we get them in session. The wedding of Sue Storm and Reed Richards was a major event, a carefully orchestrated event by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. As we discussed last week, the Fantastic Four number one, published in August of 1961, kickstarted the Marvel Universe. Going forward, Mr. Excelsior himself did everything he could to sell Marvel Comics as a place where all their heroes lived and interacted. The Fantastic Four could show up anywhere, in Amazing Spider-Man or The Incredible Hulk or wherever, and vice versa. When it came time to finally bring Sue and Reed together, Lee wanted the entire Marvel Universe to show up for their nuptials. The Big Day finally happened in Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, published in October of 1965, four years after the FF got their Cosmic Rays makeover. It's a massive, seemingly never-ending comic. On the cover, it proudly states 72 big pages. And if you pull it up on your screen right now, you'll see that it also sports nearly every character in the Marvel Comics universe. This was the big day, and to prove that point, Kirby and Lee wanted everyone to show up, from Millie the Model to Captain America, Thor, Spider-Man, and yeah, of course, Namor the Submariner. To make matters worse, Doctor Doom is so perturbed by Reed's impending happiness that he concocts an emotion machine that's sole purpose is to rile up all the nearby villains and spur them into catastrophic action. As a result, the big wedding issue is more like a big punch-em-up issue. As such, the plan was never to cover this historic issue beat for beat on this podcast, but read it only to give us context for this episode on the 40th wedding anniversary special that we're having now. Yes, Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 is where Reed and Sue tie the knot, but its most significant feature is how it brings the entire Marvel Universe under one single issue. I would have loved to have been reading this comic back in the day because I'm sure it was mind-blowing, but it doesn't actually provide a lot of content for Sue and Reed talk, as the ceremony is put on the back burner by Doom the Jerk. Since Reed and Sue hooked up before the first Fantastic Four story even started, their relationship is the longest lasting one within Marvel Comics. Their backstory is that they met when he was a boarder at her aunt's house. They were drawn to each other immediately, but Reed was always a product of his time, and if you read these early issues, you see how he's constantly dismissing her ideas as inferior to his. He's a smart guy, but he's also a really dumb guy. He's a dumb, smart guy. No wonder Sue had eyes for Namor every once in a while. As we will see when we get into the meat of this episode, Reed and Sue's marriage is not without its bumps. As we can attest regarding our own marriage, the person you marry is not the person you'll always be married to, and thank goodness for that. Reed and Sue grow tremendously over the course of their marriage, and they learn so much about each other by being with each other. Does Reed ever stop being a dismissive jerk? Uh, he has his moments, but... Before we can get into those moments, we need to talk about our love expert, Gretchen Rubin. Lisa, how's she going to work into this week's episode? We are going to be using her revolutionary concept and book, The Four Tendencies, full title, The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better, parentheses, and Other People's Lives Better Too, 
close parentheses, published in 2017 from Penguin Random House. What is with these crazy long titles and self-help books? Like, yeah. And they always have to have parentheses. I think that they're under this pressure to present the thesis statement mm. of their concept in a title, yeah. but then it's like, well, that doesn't sound fun or punchy, so I have to make it cute with parentheses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like the whole book is in the title right there. Why? Yeah, why did I read the rest of this book? <laughs> well, let us know. Why, Lisa? Because I want to make Sue and Reed's lives better and our lives better, parentheses, because we like them, <laughs> close parentheses. <laughs> the Four Tendencies profiles individuals by the way they respond to expectations. Inner expectations, uh, the ones we place on ourselves, and outer expectations, the ones that others or our environment place on us. In our last episode on issues one through six of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's The Fantastic Four, we determined Sue and Reed's tendencies. Reed is an upholder who responds well to inner and outer expectations, and Sue is an obliger who responds well to outer expectations but poorly to inner expectations. We also couldn't help ourselves, and we ended up profiling the rest of the team as well. Ben Grimm is a big-time questioner who responds well to inner expectations but poorly to outer expectations, and Johnny is... Like his sister and obliger, you know I was disappointed when there wasn't a representation of each tendency on the team, but it's probably hard to get rebels to wear the same spandex as everybody but else. But we did find a rebel within those six issues. I loosely typed Victor Von Doom as a rebel who responds poorly to outer and inner expectations, but before you think I have something against rebels, Brad is also a rebel. Rebels have some very admirable qualities that are not necessarily used for evil. <sighs> Thank goodness. Is that true, though? We're just going to focus on Reed and Sue this episode, so we'll only be talking obligers and upholders, but we will get into the other tendencies in future sessions because I think Reed and Sue's marriage could be made way better by getting a handle on the thing and his disruptive questioner ways. So let's start with Sue. She is, like myself, an obliger, which means she responds well to outer expectations, but she responds poorly to inner expectations. There was actually a pretty typical obliger moment in the Fantastic Four number two, when she made the bright blue FF costumes for the entire team. <laughs> but when Reed suggested that she go into fashion design, she balked, I've got enough to do acting as nursemaid for you three. Obligers can feel like they are always making time for others, but never make time for themselves. Gretchen calls obligers the rock of the world mm. because not only are they the most common of the four tendencies, but they are the most reliable of the four tendencies. They're the most likely to respond in an emergency, volunteer to help, they can generally meet deadlines, fulfill responsibilities, and they are the most likely to contribute in any given situation. Gretchen says that it's the obliger's, quote, active sense of obligation to others, but as an experienced obliger, I would say it's guilt. Obligers can be easily guilted into things. She also calls obligers the universal partner because they can go along and get along with the other three tendencies, finding ways to accommodate others' desires and goals. If you are an obliger like Sue and myself, you know that underneath that accommodating exterior 
can turn a lot of frustration because while they're out there being the rock of the world and the universal partner, meeting all of these external obligations, obligers have their own private inner expectations that are just lying dormant. Obligers are motivated by supervision, late fees, deadlines, monitoring and compromises, and the gratitude of others, all of which end up being prioritized over more internal aspirations. Obligers feel this compulsion to say yes, 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 these imposed outer expectations that they can end up being overwhelmed and sometimes feel resentful about the time they are making for others. When obligers are pushed too far, they go into a state Gretchen refers to as obliger rebellion, which is an emotional or literal board flip. Sorry, I'm not meeting your expectations <laughs> anymore. We saw this in the last episode in Fantastic Four number three when Johnny lost it with Ben Grimm's combative questioner attitude and quit the Fantastic Four. Thank goodness for Namor. These acts of obliger rebellion can be big and upending, like a breakup or a rage quit, or small and passive aggressive, like showing up late or ignoring emails. To those outside of the obliger's brain, these acts of rebellion can feel sudden and out of character, but to the obliger, they were a long time coming. Let's move on to Reed, who is an upholder, the rare unicorns that can readily <laughs> meet outer and inner expectations as typified by when he ignored Sue and Johnny's concerns about Namor and Dr. Doom being on the loose to catch up on some mail. Upholders are self-directed, don't struggle with deadlines, keeping appointments, meeting commitments, and managing tasks. And unlike obligers, they don't actually need supervision, oversight, mm. reminders, or penalties. When they commit to an outer expectation, they reliably follow through. And the same goes for inner expectations. When they decide to do something, they do it, even when no one else cares, or sometimes even when it's inconvenient to others. It's not like they never slip up or fight to maintain good habits, but it is for the most part easier for them and they rarely suffer the resentment or burnout of the other tendencies. Not only do upholders uphold expectations, they want to uphold expectations. They love them. They want to marry them. <laughs> they love to-do lists, self-imposed deadlines, and following instructions that others find demanding. <laughs> for upholders, expectations don't feel like a trap like they do for the other tendencies. Where other tendencies may treat themselves by excusing themselves from an expectation like playing hooky, upholders treat themselves by meeting expectations. Upholders are really good at self-care and enjoying themselves because they generally schedule time for leisure activities and other interests. They are good at ignoring other people's expectations so that they can enjoy their own inner expectations. They don't feel guilty over turning down invitations, cutting out early, or sticking to their own plans like an obliger might. Non-upholders will often trade a piggyback on upholders' self-accountability. Hey, let me know when you're doing that thing so I can do it with you. Mm -hmm. But upholders don't really relate to that impulse and can resent having to include someone else in their plan. 
Upholders can come across as being impatient or even disdainful towards others who reject expectations, can't meet their own expectations, or question expectations. Upholders do have a hard time garnering sympathy for people who don't meet expectations in the same way that they do. Upholders are generally intrigued by rules and cannot resist noting and following them. They also like to look for what Gretchen calls the rules beyond the rules, as in ethics and morals, and will break rules that conflict with their sense of justice. Upholders feel compelled to follow the rules, even in situations where it is more sensible to ignore them. They also don't relate to people who choose in circumstances to ignore the rules, and upholders can come across as blind enforcers or tattletales. Sure, upholders can be reliable and predictable, but they can be less adaptable. They feel uneasy about changes to routines, habits, and schedules once they are in place and can resist even when it means accommodating others. When under duress, upholders can experience upholder tightening, where they have a hard time making exceptions, taking breaks, or lightening up. They get stuck in routines and habits that are no longer serving them or the group. There are some commonalities between obligers and upholders. They both have trouble delegating, but for different reasons. Obligers don't delegate because they know how burdened they can feel mm. by someone else by putting something on their plate and don't want to put that on others. Upholders, on the other hand, have been burned before and <laughs> they know that they can count on themselves more than they can count on anyone else and are skeptical about others' ability to follow through. In upholder-obliger relationships, Upholders appreciate the reliability of their obliger partner, but can be unsympathetic when obligers feel pressured to meet others' external expectations over their own. Obligers can feel their upholder partner is cold and selfish mm. because sometimes they choose their inner obligation over others' outer obligations. <laughs> you know, like, I love listening to that and it because it's so reads as read and sue. Mm -hmm. Like in the first episode, last week's episode, we were talking about like, well, you know, it's 60 years of a relationship. This is the oldest relationship in Marvel comics. I'm sure we're gonna see their tendencies shift as other writers take over, but it feels like, no, they, like, these tendencies were there in those first six issues, and they're still there 40 years later when we're reading this wedding special. And I've been reading Wade and Warango's Fantastic Four run, and I feel like, yeah, no, these tendencies are still read and sue. And there's actually a great range of behavior within a tendency. Like, an upholder who doesn't have anything else on their plate, of course is going to make all of these accommodations mm. for other people's expectations, but when they're starting to feel a little bit stressed or they have something else that they want to uphold, then they are going to seem cold, yeah. uncaring. Yeah. And even obligers sometimes reach a point where they're like, you know what, screw it, 
I'm not going to do anything because I am in rebellion because I am totally overwhelmed. Yeah, and, and we're gonna we're gonna get into it here in a second. And I think the tendency, pun intended, is to focus on the negative aspects of each tendency. Like that's where my brain sort of zeroes in on. But it's really not about positive or negative. It's just, this is how you behave and it's good to know how you behave and for what reasons. A lot of the conflicts between tendencies is the presumption that somebody else is thinking the same way mm. that you are or doing the same thing for the same reasons mm. that you are. And mm. I think having an awareness that there are other people who feel differently about expectations creates a lot of empathy for when people respond to something mm. that seems in conflict with the way that you would respond. Yeah, I, I think for sure. And we're going to see a lot of that in the wedding special issue. But before we can talk about that comic, we got to enter into words of affirmation. Na, 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 na. So last week, we had a huge crop of new patrons join our community, and this week, we were sent some of the most loving reviews on our Apple podcast page. There are many ways to support us, and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is probably the most effective in helping us reach new listeners. And these reviews, I really, really love them. This first one comes from um, Cap on Ice 420. Cap on Ice 420. I, I love that. 420. Uh, I saw it because it's written as one word. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, it's Italian. Yeah, Caponice. <laughs> <laughs> Cap on Ice 420. Uh, and this is what they say. The energy these guys give off instantly hooked me and put me in a great mood. I listened to their episode on Judge Dredd, who was a character I have always enjoyed and didn't know a lot about, but they dove into him and really helped me understand the character. Def adding the show to my rotation, signed The Geeks. Uh... Cap on Ice 420, thank you so much. I am still very much in a Judge Dredd he frame is. of mind. I finally subscribed to 2080s magazine, and uh, getting these thin little comic book anthologies in the mail is like a new Christmas. When it shows up, it you know I'm unwrapping them. I'm so excited. I'm glad you're excited about Judge Dredd. And if you're venturing into Judge Dredd for the first time, these anthology magazines are a great way to do so. Yes, they're from overseas. They're a little expensive, but worth it, worth it. We have another review, Lisa. Do you want to read this one? Sure. This one comes from Comic Wonk Pod. I, I, I love that. <laughs> Lisa and Brad are a charming couple that provide an inviting atmosphere to examine different pairings in comic books. You come for the unabashed geekiness, yeah. but you stay for their insights into honest human experience playing out between pop culture icons. Yeah. Comic book couples counseling doesn't just make you a more well-rounded geek. Mm. It makes you a more well-rounded person. Well, that's that's some crazy high praise. I hope that's true. That's so sweet. It's it certainly, I feel like, making me a better well-rounded person. I think that's certainly our intention. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Comic Wonk Pod, thank you so much. Cap on Ice 420, thank you so much. Please, if you're listening to this, 
please reach out to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a nice review. We we really need these words of affirmation, clearly. Now, onto the comic book, Excelsior. It's time to get down with this week's book and go into session with Reed and Sue. We're exploring the Fantastic Four Wedding Special, Volume 1, Number 1, published by Marvel Comics in November of 2005 on Reed and Sue's 40th anniversary. The comic is written by Carl Kessel, who we've previously discussed in our Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy series, penciled by Drew Johnson, inked by Kessel, as well as Drew Garachi and Andrew Hennessy. The comic is colored by Maury Hollowell and lettered by Dave Lampier. La- La- Lampier? I, I'm probably butchering that, but... Lampfear. Lampfear. Lamp- that makes more sense. Uh, but here's the synopsis as provided uh, by Marvel's website. A true collector's item celebrating one of the greatest events in comics history, the marriage of Reed Richards and Sue Storm. Hard to believe they tied the knot 40 years ago, and it certainly doesn't seem that much time has passed to Reed and Sue themselves when a special evening out gives them a chance to look over their entire life together, past, present, and future, Like all great weddings, it's hard to read this copy, Uh, this special (laughs) mixes something old, the original Lee Kirby FF Wedding Spectacular, with something new, The Life Fantastic by Kessel and Johnson, even though there's nothing borrowed, and the only thing blue will be any fan who misses this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Cute. I think it's super cute. I think they could have found something borrowed to put into this book. I think each of these couples was borrowed from their timeline, oh, certainly. Oh, yeah, there you go. And they are all wearing the FF uniforms, Designed by aspiring but never achieving designer Sue Storm hyphen Richards. <laughs> Why aren't you writing this copy, Lisa? What if that's what all of this added up to? Is that Lisa's <laughs> secret dream is to write copy. Write copy. I really want that for you. I really want that for you, and I want that for me. Yeah, now you I'm an obliger. You're holding me accountable. That's right. I'm taking this internal intention and making it external it's gonna happen you guys yeah yeah we're gonna make each other's dreams come true uh because we can't do it on our own uh now like getting into the conversation itself about this storyline i think we should do what we did with fantastic four one through six and looking at that first cover right where we celebrated jack kirby's fantastic four number one cover we love it so much let's look at the fantastic four wedding special cover The artist is Gene Ha. The first thing that comes to note is we actually see in the back, trying to get into the wedding, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And Nick Fury is like, sorry, you guys, you're not on the list. And that's a representation of what happens at the end of Fantastic Four Annual number three is we don't see their face in that comic, but we get references to Stan and Jack trying to get into the wedding, but they're not on the list. So back off. I love that Gene Ha puts face to Stan and Jack's cameo. And it's the faces of Stan and Jack of that era, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not mustached and sunglasses Stanley. It's no toupee, mustacheless Stanley. And yeah, it's just, it's a very cute little nod to the original comic. Um, But what do you think about the uh, representation of the guests on that cover, Lisa? Just like the original, this cover is rife with cameos. Thor is holding Mjolnir and looks very excited. He loves a party. 
Captain America wearing his scales. He's smiling. <laughs> Daredevil, whose eyeline is not right on, which is seems perfect for him. <laughs> I love smiling. his expression too. Like Gene Ha is really selling his blindness. <laughs> the there are uh a couple of women. Uh, well, there's one woman that I recognize, and that's Scarlet Witch. Sure. She's looking the complete wrong direction. Yeah. And then there are, there's this uh, blonde woman in Periwinkle. I she th- looks very co- concerned. I think that's Karen Page sitting with Daredevil, his girlfriend. She doesn't look happy to be there at all. You're right. She's literally clutching her pearls. <laughs> there is a brunette here who seems to be glaring. And then, uh, like, to me, I think they see, like, oh, Sue and Reed, like, if they were meant to be together, perhaps they'd be together already. Maybe he seems kind of cold. <laughs> You're inferring a lot. Uh, yeah, and, and that. But even Sue Storm, they, it looks like he's about to give her a smooch, but her lo- eye line is completely the wrong direction. She like seems to be looking past him. Like, what could possibly be over there? Uh, Namor. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah, that is that. That's kind of I- interesting. I, I mean, I do love. Thor in particular on that cover. I really like Daredevil's expression. And like, I feel like there's something going on between Captain America and Scarlet Witch. Um, you know, you know, when you go to a wedding, sometimes it like it stirs up, you know, romantic feelings and your own desires to couple. And maybe there's something happening there. Ooh, I like that idea. Mr. Clean is here. What? No, give it, give it, give it, give it, give it. No, that's, that is Professor X, Lisa. (laughs) And now that I'm looking at it, I don't actually even think that's Karen Page. I don't know who that blonde lady is. Maybe that's Hawkeye and Mockingbird, maybe together? But she is for sure not happy about being at this wedding. I think we should also point out that Johnny and Ben are in attendance and Ben is, he got a little handkerchief that he's wiping away some tears. Those could be sad tears because we know that he is uh, holding a torch, carrying a torch for Sue Storm. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And Johnny is also not looking so much at Reed and Sue. He looks to be looking at Ben. No, he seems to be looking at whatever Sue is looking at. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, he, I guess he could be looking at Namor, too. I thought he was looking at Ben and sort of taking in, like, this guy is crying. What's his <laughs> deal? I, don't I know. cry at weddings. It's an awesome cover is basically all I just wanted to say on this uh, introduction here before we get into the story itself. There is so much story and character inferred in this cover, and I love that they kept with the original Sue Storm 60s wedding appearance. Mm. She's got the pillbox almost style veil. She's got that flattering square neckline. She looks luminous. Yeah, and and that's not necessarily the style that happens once you turn the page and go into the comic book, right? Like Drew Johnson's art is updating, sort of retconning the imagery of the past, whereas Gene Ha is preserving it. And I feel weird about that, right? Like, because for me, the Fantastic Four are so tied to the 60s and the space race, again, like we talked about on the last episode. And comics, if to survive, they can't keep the Fantastic Four as a period comic, but 
part of me is like, well, could, well, maybe they could have, or any time that they do, like they got this new comic out right now, uh, Fantastic Four Life Story from Mark Russell, the writer, and it is doing what Spider-Man Life Story did, where it takes the story starting at 1961 and then goes decade by decade, progressing them through actual time, something that Marvel Comics have never allowed. Uh, and now that I have discovered Judge Dredd and seen how 2000 AD actually progresses the age of Judge Dredd, you see that, yes, you can age a character. I'm I'm compelled to go in like, ah, I, I sort of wish that happened with Fantastic Four. I do understand how maybe younger readers can't relate to things that happened 60 years ago. But at the same time, when you remove the Cold War from the Fantastic Four, you do lose something. It's true that for the vast amount of time that comics have existed, they've been operating under this presumption that their characters to be relatable have to be timeless. Yeah, and, and have, have to be like of an, a younger age, like 20s teenage age. And I feel like that presumption is now going away. Mm. Like, I think that... Uh, just like the culture is evolving. But at that same time, like the accessibility to these old comics is so much greater. So mm. when you reboot Sue Storm, you don't lose anything because you go like, oh, well, I prefer Cold War Sue Storm. Well, you can go read those comics. They still exist. Yeah, that is true. But I do feel like I would enjoy a Fantastic Four title where Reed and Sue pass the story, the narrative mantle off to Franklin Richards and Valerie Richards, their children. Or maybe I'm just hung up on 2080s progressive storytelling. I'm obsessing over it right now and I just want to project it onto Fantastic Four. <laughs> Either way, we're not here to talk about the comics that aren't in front of us. We're here to talk about the comics that are in front of us. So let's get into the Fantastic Four wedding special 40th anniversary edition Page one. Page one opens with a retelling of the origin story of the Fantastic Four with a little, little twist of retcon in there. Yeah. In the OG comic, uh, Reed with his best buds were uh, looking to beat the Russians. And that's why there was this urgency to get to the rocket and blast off into space. In this retelling, it's just like a hot date kind of spontaneous. Yeah, I mean, they don't want to focus on the motivations for why they're going up into space. They, they just need to say, like, they need to get up into space and they're all going up as a group right now. And it there is an implication that, uh, you know, Sue has encouraged Reed to get out into the field to put his science to practice. And that's what he is doing. And that's really all you need to know about why they're doing what they're doing. Now, some listeners might think that this is contrary to his upholder tendency because he is breaking a rule mm. and upholders love rules. But he admits that this is a little out of character for him and that it has been Sue's influence. Perhaps as an obliger, she sees he has this kind of reserved and repressed adventurer spirit and she's just supporting him in that. And he is a little preoccupied with getting in trouble and the way that she gets him <laughs> 
to get on that rocket is like, well, you promised Johnny, mm-hmm. right? So perhaps she, mm. he, he said he would take her out into outer space to impress her, and she solicited a promise out of him, and his upholder tendency is like, well, I do have to uphold this promise. Mm, Am I doing some kind of gymnastics to support (laughs) (laughs) my suspicions? Yes, yes I am. Uh, But I like it, but I like it. I also don't wanna like pass this page without talking about their flirtation style. Mm -hmm. And I think it does speak to who they are as upholders and obligers. You know, when, when Reed is saying like, you know, it's because of you that I'm doing this thing. And Sue's flirty response back is, well, thank me or spank me, Reed, which will it be? And like, that is such a, uh, not creepy. I would say it's a corny, like example of expressing sexuality in this situation. Uh-huh. And but, I think she nails it later with the, I'm going to need some help getting out of this spacesuit later. Well, like, I think that's a way better that, line. Well, that's a way better line than, well, thank me or spank me. But I, but I, I like that corny uncomfortableness of, with their flirtations, because it does like that feels of a piece with what we saw in the Kirby and Lee comics, those first six issues. I mean, of course this is, you know, Kirby Lee would not have said spank me, but but, <laughs> but just that corniness, that awkwardness. I also think this retcon is an attempt to give Sue Storm more agency. Oh, for sure. Um, but I think they undermine it a little bit by her saying that she's an aspiring actress and yeah. her acting career isn't going anywhere because we know that once they get into the superhero game, like that dream goes right out the window yeah. along with any other obliger dreams she may have. And like that acting business, that also gets retconned uh, at some point too. And like in the movies, whenever they adapt th- th- this story, they don't, they're like, no, no, she's like one of the science team, right? And she should be one of the science team. Equal partners just makes the most sense. Right. In uh, a marriage yeah. and in a superhero team. Yes, for sure. And we see that when we leave this flashback and we go to the present day into the back building. It's in total chaos. Reed and Sue have left the kids, Valerie and Franklin, with Ben and Johnny, and they're terrible babysitters. (laughs) Sue, like, escapes the wreckage, goes to her bedroom, and receives this mysterious note seemingly from Reed. And Reed also gets a note seemingly from Sue. And they're gonna go have a special date night. And They now know they can't just leave their kids with Johnny and Ben, so they need to get babysitters for the babysitters, and those babysitters are the Inhumans. I find that bizarre. Like, I understand Sue wanting to not leave the kids with Ben and Johnny, but why... Why does she not trust them alone in the house anymore? Like, why does her adult brother and adult friend need a babysitter. Well, because of that scene that we see, that total wreckage that we see. And I think that Sue does have some parental issues with Johnny in particular. She's always feeling like she has to take care. Yeah, and so there's some trust stuff there. And that is that is a relationship that it gets further explored and is continually re-explored. Um, Again, I'm going to mention the Mark Wade and Mike Riengo run that I'm currently reading, but that is very much at the heart of that story. Uh, And so, like, I get why they go to the Inhumans. Now, 
the Inhumans, you know, they've got some issues too. And it's not like you're going to drop them off at the Inhumans and nothing bad could possibly happen. But in this storyline, they're decent proxy parents. As Reed and Sue are approaching the Tavern on the Green, they put it together that their uh, invitations were not, in fact, from each other. This could very well be a trap. And of course, Sue, the obliger, is like, well, I am prepared to take care of anyone at any time. And in my clutch is Patel, <laughs> our uniforms. Yeah. And Reed is like, well, what if this is actually a surprise party and this could be awkward? And she's like, I'm invisible. I'm still <laughs> taking care of you. I mean, you know, like thinking it's a trap, you know, that makes sense. On their wedding day, it was a trap. Like villains are always around the corner. So not trusting a good time, it only makes sense for Reed and Sue. They enter the party and they see a bunch of versions of themselves. Yeah. But Reed is immediately put at ease because he sees a version of himself with a hyper glove. <laughs> and he goes, well, only I have thought about a hyper glove. And I'm the only person who is smart enough to then invent the hyper glove. So clearly, this is a version of me from a future timeline after I've made this glove yeah. that I've been thinking about. His ego justifies what's happening. <laughs> I think it also goes back to his upholder nature because he has skepticism about anyone else being organized enough to pull something mm -hmm. like this off. So he does, like, Sue is not fully convinced. She is still a little bit skeptical. So he's like, yeah, we can keep our, our guard up or whatever, but I'm pretty sure the only person with this level of follow through has two thumbs and is pointing <laughs> at himself and then a bunch of other fingers that are also pointing at all of the other versions of himself. It's such a great setup, especially for an anniversary issue that's designed to celebrate these two as a couple, right? They walk into this room and they are confronted by every version of themselves that has been and will be. And that first appearance, like who we see like front and center, like Sue is confronted with her worst costume, <laughs> that 90s boob window costume. Like, imagine the sensation you get as you're scrolling through your Facebook photo albums <laughs> and you see yourself from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I wore those cargo shorts. You're still wearing those cargo shorts. Well, that's shorts. a bad example. <laughs> I do every once in a while get like, uh, like, 10 years ago, you put up this status and it's mortifying. And I'm like, who is this right, person? Right, right, Like, who was that person? That person was you, but is not you now. And so Sue seeing the boob window version of herself first at the front of this door, I, I like, I think is very comical, but also extremely relatable. Yeah, really mortifying. But this is such a narratively rich device where our characters get to confront themselves, who they were, who they're going to be, and most importantly, who they are now. We get a really great example of this with the meeting of the Sues. So good. So as often happens at a party, like all of the men create a circle and all of the women create a circle. And we see all of the Sue's cackling <laughs> at their crush 
on Namor, the Submariner. A great screenshot. I've saved it. <laughs> and we do have a version of young Sue who is actually still kind of torn mm. between Reed and Namor. And she turns to one of the other Sues and goes like, how did you know that Reed was the one? And she was like, don't ask me. I literally just filed for divorce. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we have our Sue from our present. Which was sometimes hard to keep track yeah. of, like which one is our Sue. But you had to pay attention to the haircut and the black collar. And she tells the two of them, like, I remember how hard it was to be where you are and allow me to assure you that it all turns out okay. And you make it through this with Reed. And at that moment, I wanted another Sue to go like, oh, not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> In the future, boy, you and Namor have a bunch of kids. Aww, oh, I no, like that story, no. too. Alternate well, timeline. But well, yeah, so this isn't an these aren't alternate universes, Sue's. These are all on one timeline, Sue's. Knowing what we know about Sue Storm and how she's always felt this responsibility hmm. to take care of not only her Reed, but also Reed's best friend, Ben, mm -hmm. and her brother. And she has all of this responsibility. We shouldn't be surprised to meet a version of her that is considering doing the table flip and yeah. just quitting on the relationship because she clearly had this moment of obliger rebellion where she goes like, I'm overwhelmed and I just can't take care of anybody right. anymore. And I think you see that in other Sues in this issue, but also in Sue throughout Fantastic Four is like once you have an obliger rebellion, that's not like your one obliger rebellion. Like those flare ups are going to continue to occur. You're going to have to keep addressing the, that that confrontation. And I think like when we talk on this show or when you experience therapy in film and fiction, there's like a breakthrough moment and you're like, okay, I understand this. I know who I am now. And you never know who you are now. Like you're all, you're always learning who you are now. You have to constantly reevaluate. I think a, a journey of self-discovery though is aided by being able to identify yes. what your patterns are. For like, sure. For me, once I learned what Obliger Rebellion was, I felt like I could better, like, go, like, steer the ship another way. Like, I feel myself wanting to quit. Just yesterday, I told Brad, like, I think I'm on the wrong career path. Right. I want to quit my entire job and just start fresh. Right, right. And, but I know that that is not my ra rational brain but, but at even if you were to quit your day job, which is, you know, as I said yesterday, you could totally do it and be totally fine. And then you get onto a new career path or you find another job like that is not now the finish line. Right? Yeah. And like that that's does, not pure happiness on there over there. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to feel overwhelmed ever again. Correct. Yeah. And just because Sue did not choose Namor doesn't mean like Namor is going to just disappear from her life. What I love about this issue in particular is how much Namor hangs over everything in this storyline. And we get this flashback when Sue had this conversation with Ben about her feelings regarding the Submariner. 
I love this flashback with Ben Grimm because it shows how valuable it is to get perspective mm. from another tendency. Because as we know, Ben Grimm is a questioner. So she's telling him about how she feels torn between Reed and Namor. And she says, like, when I met Namor, he was so broken and he was so lonely. Oblige your tendency. <laughs> she goes in there and goes like, I see a person I who I can guy. take care yeah. of. And she goes, and now he wants me to be a queen. And that is super flattering. <laughs> but then I think about Reed and there's something inside me that feels very sad. And Ben Grimm goes like, Reed loves you. You might not be able to tell because upholders are cold and unemotional, but still waters run deep. And what's the real question here, Sue? Mm. Is the question, who is going to miss you if you don't marry them? Who needs you the most? Or what? How, how do you see yourself the most happy? Do you see yourself the most happy as a queen or as a wife? And so he changed her perspective to go like, stop thinking about other people's desires. Think how about, about yours. How about you say that inner, that inner expectation out loud and make this inner expectation and outer expectation by telling someone, anyone, what you actually want. Oh, I love it. Because for all of Ben's faults, he loves these people and he wants their happiness for them as much as they want their happiness for themselves. I mean, they're beyond friends. They are family and he wants the best for his family. That flashback ends and apparently one of the reads was listening and he goes like, well, it wasn't just Sue that was having doubts. And then we get a flashback with Reed and Johnny with uh, Reed's narration giving the most bizarre metaphor I have ever read. <laughs> he, he says, he says um, I had doubts about our relationship too. After all, love, as they say, is a two-way street and Namor drove a mean muscle car <laughs> while I was constantly reinventing the wheel. Like, is this implying that Reed was, like, overthinking it? Like, is this, like, maybe... Well, clearly he's overthinking it. Like, so, like, if Namor is the muscle car, there is no car that currently exists that Reed could be. Like, the Fantastic Car is Reed's car. But he can't even say the Fantastic Car because he's constantly creating something new and better. So he's always new and better. So, so like, this could be an example of, like questioners have their own like little condition that they mm. have that's called analysis paralysis where questioners just keep rethinking a situation in their mind to the point where they can't make a decision anymore. But there is also upholder tightening and maybe it's just hard for Reed to upend his future and make this enormous change mm. Because upholders do yeah. have a hard time factoring someone else into their their plans. Yes. But whatever the case may be, Johnny is talking an unsure read about his future with his sister. And Johnny says, like, 
My sister has always been able to see right through people, perhaps all the way down to what they actually need as part of her obliger tendency. And what she saw in the Submariner was that, you know, he wasn't an entirely bad person, but like she's not in Atlantis now. Like, right. and, and Reed goes like, well, she's not in Atlantis because she can't breathe in Atlantis. <laughs> it's literally underwater. It's such a Reed thing. But then Johnny makes a beautiful point, which is like, well, she went to space with you and she can't breathe up there either. I love, like, what a great response from Johnny. Well, Johnny is also an obliger. So he can sense what, Reed needs to hear to help get him out of his tightening rut. So Reed Richards ends that flashback saying, and from that point on, I never looked back. But then we get a flare up from divorce Sue Storm going like, well, you should have looked back because while you were off having ad adventures and doing your research in your lab, I was raising our son alone. And I had to take care of our entire family life, which I think is a big clue to why she went into rebellion. And divorce Reed Richards goes like, how many times must I apologize? I didn't, I didn't even realize like what I, I thought what I was doing was for us. Like as an upholder, he goes like, well, I have to keep our routine going. Like we have to continue being superheroes and I have to continue my research. So my part, my job is to keep our routines going. So then our Sue Storm goes like, puts it all in perspective and goes like, you were both new parents. Your world changed so completely and you had to learn how to be with this new version of yourselves. Yeah, so forgive yourselves yeah. right? and each other. Right? Yeah, like you had no idea what it was going to be like to have, to be new parents. And that's not the kind of thing that you can be taught or right. told how to do. So mistakes and misunderstandings are inevitable. Yeah, and so, you know, the divorce Sue and Reed say like, I, ho I hope you're right. And, you know, Reed also says like, you gotta remember like roses, they have their thorns too. And when you turn the page after they've come to this realization that they're, you know, like amongst all this beauty, there's going to be sticky spots. Mm -hmm. uh, you see this image of MIT Reed and actress Sue, and they're embracing each other because they're seeing all the potential that's to come. And, you know, going back to your comment earlier, just a little while ago about how those two versions of Reed and Sue weren't really sure about each other. Now being part of this weird, bizarre timeline party, like it's drawing the earliest versions of themselves even closer, even tighter together. And we know the strength of narrative when it comes to solidifying a relationship. So as long as you see those thorns, those hard moments in your relationship, as something you went through and triumphed over together as a unit, your relationship can stay afloat and stay solid and stay hopeful. Yeah, and, and you know, I imagine 
that if the Reeds and Sues had never gotten back together, if the divorced versions had stayed divorced, right, this would be a very different story. You know, MIT Reed and, and, and actress Sue would see like, okay, well, we're not going to make it. So why even bother? Mm-hmm. And like, I also think there's an interesting story to be told from that point in the timeline. If, if divorced Reed and Sue were the central focus and they never came back together. And they would look at those past versions of themselves completely differently because they're all engaged in something that is hopeless, you know, and is ultimately going to come to nothing. Right, right. And fail. Right, right. But it's important to note that not every relationship succeeds. Divorce is the future for many couples. And just because you didn't make it till death do you part doesn't mean that your relationship is a failure. Yeah, and we've talked about that all the time on this podcast. It's like, that's just not Reed and Sue's story. And that's not the value of their story as told on this timeline where, like, Togetherness is their future. Their story as told here is all about hope. But there could be another Reed and Sue timeline where they get to that divorce moment and they do go through with the the divorce. And that doesn't mean that their relationship is a failure. Lisa, I need to get you reading some ultimate Reed and Sue comics because that Reed is evil as hell and there, oh, no. there's no hope in that relationship. Aw, But after that rose metaphor and the divorced versions sort of coming together, we now meet the guests of honor at this party, and it is Reed and Sue on their wedding day. They come through the doors and boom, they're greeted by all their different versions. They also don't consider this a trap. They see a bunch of (laughs) versions of themselves and they roll with it. They just survived a battle with like (laughs) 50 different Marvel villains. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And um, Sue... Sue in the spacesuit goes like, how was the wedding? (laughs) And then all of the Sue's answer like, it was nuts, but generally positive. (laughs) So good. And the big splash page of the book is revisiting that moment when they get married and they have their first kiss on the altar. And it's a gorgeous splash page. Bravo to Drew Johnson. And then we turn the page and Moon Sue was like, well, how is the the honeymoon? And Bride Sue is like, oh, yeah, how is the honeymoon, Reed? Because you, the upholder, made all of the arrangements. This is weird. It's creepy. I don't like it. And uh, it turns out that their honeymoon is on the blue spot of the moon, and they're being hosted by Uwatu, the watcher, who promises not to watch them F-word. He's <laughs> lying. <laughs> He watches it all. I know he does. And he stores that information in that big brain of his. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's a strange moment, but also kind of cute. But again, just just because like, I know you have to have the watch here at the moment, but like, I, I don't know. It, just it, me it feels weird. Now, Brad, you said the guest of honor was the wedding couple. Mm. I actually think mm. that the guest of honor is the engagement couple. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're, yes, yes, yes. Because there is like an old grandpa and grandma, Reed and Sue, who's, who seem to be the hosts of this party. And they take all of their guests through this portal to go back in time to 
the lover's tree where Reed and Sue got engaged. Yeah, this is the only couple where they go to meet them on their timeline at their moment. The moment when Reed goes down on one knee and invites Sue on the adventure of a lifetime to which she answers, of course, now and forever. And then our Reed and Sue from our present are like looking around and they're like, we see all of these versions of us mm. from these kind of monumental relationship moments. And like, why are we here? We're, we're just a couple from like an ordinary date night. At that moment, Grandpa Reed does one last toast uh, and admit that they were the ones who brought everyone together for their 40th wedding anniversary. And they take this moment to thank all of these past versions of themselves for this grand adventure that they've been on. And they have only one more grand adventure in front of them, which I guess is death. Uh, or conquering death or conquering death. They're immortals. But I love this moment where they thank themselves for their wonderful life, this life fantastic. And I was, as I was typing up my notes for this episode, I got choked up mm. at this idea of going to all of these versions of yourself that you have since shed and changed and tweaked and dismissed and gone like, thank you guys. It's so because, beautiful. Because we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be us without you. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I love it so much. What a fantastic ending. I also really appreciate that they're able to get in our 40th anniversary despite the sliding timeline of comic books, right? So this couple here is actually celebrating the 40th wedding anniversary. This is a 40th wedding anniversary comic book. Very cool. And they all clink their glasses and they drink from their glasses, but the glasses are filled with water from the river of forgetfulness. Hence, they don't all remember yeah. that weird party they went to 27 times in their life. Yeah, Reed and Sue are not going to destroy their timeline. This is their 40th wedding anniversary. They want to make sure that they get to it. We then see our Reed and Sue leaving the restaurant and going like, ah, what a nice ordinary date night we just had. And uh, Reed is like, oh, it's so nice to get away. And Sue goes like, we never get enough time together, just you and I, which is such an obliger thing to say. Like, and she goes like, I always want more time with you. And Reed goes like, well, we have to take advantage of moments like this and li live each day like it was our last. And Sue corrects him and says like, no, we have to live each day as if it's our first. Mm. Like we have mm. to celebrate the newness it's a great idea. of the moment. And in that moment, um, a, a kid offers to take their picture. And then we see grandma and grandpa Richards looking at that picture as they're getting ready to go on this last grand adventure. Yeah, like that was a significant moment and they just didn't realize it. And how often is that the case for you? Like when you're living the, the moment, you don't realize just how important that moment is. It's only in reflection do you realize what a great day that was or what a significant day that was. And the reason 
our Reed and Sue were there was because normal moments like that were so special and so rare for Mm -hmm. them. And Grandpa Reed goes like, I love that moment because of its ordinariness. And he goes on to say like, I know that it's sentimental claptrap, right? He's an upholder. He doesn't really (laughs) like to get emotional. And Sue supports him and goes like, it's sweet. It's sweet that you love this version of us. Right, and that's why we invited them. And what I love about these final two pages is we get this Rigelian recorder walking into Grandpa Sue and Grandpa Reed. And the Rigelian recorder has documented everything that has gone on in this comic book and put it into like a holocube or a holocron that Reed can carry around the cosmos like a photo album, but it's a lot less bulky, he says. And these Rigelian recorders from the comics, they were created by Rigelians. They're sentient robots. They were built to uh, bring information from the cosmos back to Rigelia. And the Fantastic Four have co-opted it for family album purposes. And I just think that is so crazy adorable. The recorder was disguised as the maitre d'. So good. Because I love it when you like, I make a mental note of like, I wonder who that guy is. And then you forget about him. And then at the end of the book, it was like, he was... A recorder all along. Yeah, I and love then that you stuff. flip back through the comic to find <laughs> all the maitre d' spots. Yeah, it's so fun. Um, so then the comic ends with them. They have their little pyramid full of memories, and they're about to go off into the bright light, which is their next adventure, which we all know is death. <laughs> and But I love that as we see their silhouettes going into the bright light, Reed calls Sue woman. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he is still Reed. He's an old man Reed. He's still, in many ways, stuck in the Cold War. (laughs) And she says, like, but it does recall, it's like a callback to uh, that date at the beginning of the book where they go into space. And she says, like, well, you've always... You've always shown me things that I've never seen before. Take me to the next thing. And he says, my word, woman, you don't want much. I'm like, okay, sarcasm, (laughs) that's fine. It's a sweet moment, but whatever. But that's not the last words by her, though. She responds. She says, luckily, nope. It's still Reed. Is still it? Reed talking. What he is, gets what two does bubbles. Reed say? He says, luckily, I'm just the man for you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it does stay with his ego. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Very sweet. The last panel does have that p- little photograph of our Reed and Sue. And the final words are, and they lived happily ever after. So Reed and Sue's story is a happily ever after story. Uh, you know, like I just... I crazy loved reading this comic book. I had never read it before. I think it is like the perfect Reed and Sue story. And in some ways, I wish we had saved this issue for the last in our Fantastic Four series. Um, But at the same time, we know we're going to be going into Fantastic Four Civil War next episode. And there will be some comfort knowing that they survived Civil War because of our knowledge around this comic book. Granted, uh, we know how timelines work, and this could still be screwed up. Well, like I guess that's true. Yes, in the uh, according to the current present where we all are, they end up happily ever after. But you know that there's going to be some kind of time jumper or some kind of secret war, something. Yeah, that's going to mess up the timeline anyway. So yeah. let's not get too attached. Okay, 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 okay. I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm attached. I would also really love a comic 
that followed Grandpa Sue or yes. Grandpa Reed and Grandma Sue. I think that would be a really interesting story. Absolutely. And that's our time with Reed and Sue. It's time to wrap this up with a little reflection. And Brad, I have a question I have been dying to ask you. Mm, okay. Have you been thinking about which Brad and Lisa's for our from our timeline would you like to hang out with? And, and uh, I was, that was not what I thought you were going to ask. And I had not prepared to answer that question. That's an awesome question. Stalling, stalling, stalling. I, cause you like when, when I think about our relationship, we've been married, uh, well, 13 years this year will be 13 years and we've been together 15 years. Yep. That's crazy. And I do often think about the Brad and Lisa at the start of our relationship and how it's actually a little hard to recognize those two people. You know, sometimes I'll be scrolling through photos on Facebook or Instagram and I'll see those early photos of the two of us, you know, like at the Washington Monument during the 4th of July and we just look so much younger. And you go like, boy, you're like, Brad, you have so much crazy life ahead of you. And it is kind of fun to think of ourselves as being in an adventure the way that Sue and Reed are. So certainly I'd like to go back to those earliest dating days um, when the idea was I was going to move to California and this wasn't a long-term relationship. We were just sort of hanging out. Um, I, would I would love to pull the Brad and Lisa – uh, out of the moment right after we shared our first kiss <laughs> and how uncomfortable and awkward and terrible that first kiss was yeah. and how it threw everything into question. I think like if we had a divorce moment in our relationship, I think it would probably be that moment. But maybe also you would want to pick like one of our fights You'd want to find a, a, one of like our, our biggest fight and like right now, like going like, OK, what is Brad and Lisa's biggest fight? And would we pull them out of the timeline to bring to this party, this very weird party? Uh, I guess that would be the book club fight. Oh, yeah. Where we were arguing about Saga and how certain people in our book club were reacting to Saga. And I was defending our buddy Matt, who hated Saga, even though I loved Saga. And the fact that I love Saga and I was defending Matt's hatred of Saga to you after the party brought so much rage out of you. And then your rage brought rage out of me. And I threw a glass across the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> that was like 10 years ago, guys. The way you tell that fight makes me sound like a bad person. I, I think I sound like the bad person. I got so bad that I chucked a glass across the apartment. But it it sounds like I was mad at you for defending your friend Matt, where I believed that Matt was just being a contrarian yeah. a-hole yeah. and trying to ruin Saga for the rest of us. Yeah. And so I was like, why are you throwing your support behind that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and and I, w like, because he was, like, the one guy who hated Saga in that group, and I felt like everyone was picking on him, and that's why I was throwing my support around him. So, I am a true monster. No, no, I don't think you're a true monster. I think it was just a very weird fight, and I think it is also, like, our biggest fight we've <laughs> ever had, and I would want to pull those people out to see if my memory of that moment is true. Oh, so you want to Sherlock Holmes our timeline. Of course I do. Of course I do. I would also, of course, want to pick out Brad and Lisa on their wedding day just mm -hmm. after getting married, you know, just like they do in this book here. So I, I don't know. Like, is there is there a Brad and Lisa couple I'm missing? 
I was trying to think of like happy versions mm, of us. That's like, a good idea. <laughs> I flash back to uh, the first time you said you could see yourself married to me in the car. Do you remember that? I don't know if we've even uh, ever talked about it. We were no. at, we were on Fairfax County Parkway going towards my house, though I don't know if that's where we were actually going. That was just the direction uh-huh, that we were going. Uh-huh. And I asked like a weird like, where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, yeah, I Question. do remember. Yeah, okay. And you go I, like, well, I could see myself married to you. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I, I do remember that. And I remember thinking, cool, Brad, cool. Um, I also remember uh, when we went to Bush Gardens and I had a yeah. migraine and you got me the squid hat. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite memories. Like that, that might be my favorite photo of you where you, I've, I have just purchased the squid hat uh, from one of those little stands at Bush Gardens, you, I, and we got you sunglasses, and so you got these big dark sunglasses on. But the squid hat brought so much joy to you. So you're wearing the squid hat, you're extending its tentacles in your hands, and you have the brightest smile on your face, and you're in incredible <laughs> pain. Yeah, so much pain. I was so happy and in so much pain that I was like laughing and crying. You were like delusional, delusional. And I have a photo to prove it. And it's my favorite photo of you. Uh, I was also thinking about like when our podcasting abilities as a, like a, as a podcast couple, like solidified. And that was in Fantastic Fest three years ago, two years ago, maybe three years ago, where we were interviewing Bong Joon-ho, Takashi Miike, uh, the cast and director of VFW. That was super cool. Yeah, that's one of my, like being in those like karaoke rooms, interviewing those directors and going like, oh, Lisa and I have such a great repartee. Uh, and that, I like, I, I'm, I might be mixing up the timeline a little bit, but that feels like the origin of comic book couples counseling in a lot of ways. Uh, well, there is the first time I was on In the Mouth of Dorkness yeah. as a guest because yep. we were talking about Comic-Con. Well, we would have to get all nine versions of Comic-Con us <laughs> up in that party. Yeah, yeah. I know, that's a great question. I love, I love thinking about that. Now, here's like the kind of weird thing I have thinking about that. Like, I when I was putting together my notes about this issue and I started thinking about um, like where Grandpa Reed and Grandpa Sue are where they look back on all of these versions of us and they have all of this gratitude. Oh, Lisa's getting emotional. I'm getting emotional. and Glassy eyed. And I look back at every version of myself and I have something to criticize that person for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have a tendency, um, that uh, tendency, I don't know if that's the right word, um, <laughs> given the episode, that I don't have, where you do put a lot of judgment on your past self. I am still flinching over stuff I did in the second grade. And, and I think we all do that, and I certainly have that in my personality as, as well. Like, I'll have a memory that'll flare up, and I'll be like, oh my God. Um, Brad, you were such an idiot. And then, you know, like I think about moments like when I threw that glass across the room, like I'm deeply embarrassed and ashamed of my behavior in that moment. But I also go like, well, we got through that moment. I'm not that person anymore. Uh, or I hope I'm not that person anymore. I'm working not to be that person anymore. And so I don't have like, um, 
so much negative judgment on my past self. You though, you do, you know, you do put a lot of pressure on who you were and who you are and who you will be. I I think that like stage one of getting to the place where Sue Storm is at Mm. the end of this book and at the end of her life is going like, okay, I have, I'm still like training myself and, you know, focusing on my, on myself, loving myself in the present. Yeah. And once I reach that place, and I do think that I will, like, I do think I'm making progress, then I can start working backwards and, and forgiving the person I was in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, I love the person that you were in the past, even the versions I never met, Yeah, uh, you know, because they brought you to me and I, I love the life that we have together. And, you know, we're working on achieving things and we have goals and we have worries and anxieties around those goals. Um, but you know, what, however those goals happen or however that future, wherever that future goes, I'm happy to be traveling that journey with you. And because we're on this path together, like, you know, and especially in this moment, uh, I, I don't have any, um, I don't, like doubt about us or sadness about where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I still have loose ends. Yeah. I, ha- I still have loose ends where I go like, is my career what really what I want it to look like? Yeah. Um, is my, you know, artistic output, is that, am I, am I putting my energy where it should be going? Of course it should be going to this podcast. This podcast is just like Brad, my true love, but like the other things. But you have other things. And, and other and, talents. And, 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 you know, we have to do a better job of scheduling, as we were saying at the very, very beginning of this episode, you know, we have to, uh, schedule leisure time, schedule creative right. time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I, I am an obliger. And so I, I just keep giving pieces of my time to others. Um, and then I go like, I have no time for me. Yeah, it gets you mad. It gets you mad. Understandably like, so. Like, you know, I've been in kind of a weird place this weekend. And I think that like, just like whoever you are in the present moment and whoever you consider yourself in the present moment is not really true. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you like you can never get a perspective on your whole self in any given moment. Um, but in this moment, I'm going like, I need to work on more gratitude for myself in the past. I mean, I love that. I love that. And how great is this comic book that we can have a conversation like this one because of it, yeah. you know, like, and, and we were talking about this last night r- regarding the four tendencies in these self-help books that we read. And, you know, whether we agree with Gretchen Rubin or Gary Chapman or men are from Mars, when we're from Venus, like we've read, a, we've read a lot of claptrap, <laughs> read a lot of, uh, solid advice, some interesting philosophy. And the nice thing about going through all of this stuff, the nice thing about reading stories and, and truly considering the characters and their lives is it allows you to dig into yourself and, you know, self-reflection and, uh, that's the point of narrative and that's the point of self-help. Yeah. Yeah. I like to me in this, like, I cannot stop talking about four tendencies. <laughs> like, um, 
fully vaxxed and waxed out in the world. I went to dinner with two of my close friends and all I could talk about was their, their what I thought their tendencies could be. And they were both questioners, which makes it impossible to talk about because they just argue with me everything I say. Yeah, sometimes, you know, people just don't want to, they, they don't want to be... But uh, it's all I want to talk about. Yeah. But like in this moment, um, I go like, you know... Obliger rebellion is part of my cycle and I can feel it coming on. Like just last night, I'm just like, I just want to quit and I want to move and I just want to start over with a whole new group of people where I can establish a whole new reputation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so I do like, like we have just been even in, in these first two episodes, we've just been in the like identifying stage right. of identifying, okay, you are a an upholder. You got to look out for upholder tightening, or you are an obliger. You got to look out for you know obliger rebellion. Like I'm really looking forward to getting on to the like. Okay, what are the, some of the the solutions? How can we upset the cycle so that you have more autonomy over mm. your expectations? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. And I, and again, I just think that the four tendencies like the five love languages are so easy to understand the language that Gretchen Rubin gives us with these tendencies. It, it, it makes it so easy for us to uh, label and consider aspects of our personalities as well as character personalities. And like when you're engaging with someone, instead of going like, well, this person is being a curmudgeon right. or this person is being a stickler. Yeah. You, you, instead you go like, huh, I wonder if they're a questioner or yeah. I wonder if they're an upholder. Yeah. So I think that um, it gives you uh, more language to think about and consider others yeah. in a more forgiving way. So two episodes down with the Fantastic Fours, Reed and Sue. Uh, I am loving this series. Me too. And we have two more episodes to go. Uh, as we already said, next week, our comic book is going to be Fantastic Four Civil War. This storyline took place through the regular ongoing series in issues 538 through 543. The writer is J. Michael Straczynski with an epilogue assist by Dwayne McDuffie. Milestone Comics is back. Go pick up Milestone Returns uh, from DC Comics. Celebrate what Dwayne McDuffie gifted us with the Milestone universe. That comic is rad, by the way. Uh, and then the art is uh, Mike McCone. He's slinging the pencils. And as you may or may not recall, Civil War was a major event in the mid-aughts. The Superhuman Registration Act tore the Avengers apart, pitting Captain America against Iron Man and Reed Richards against Sue Richards. Lisa, any guess on who's on whose side regarding Sue and Reed? Uh, well, Reed is an upholder. Yeah. And so I'm going to put him on the side of Iron Man. Ooh. And then Sue is more like, hey, we, um, we need to help the superheroes. They feel, you know, obliged to do what's right and we don't need any red tape getting in the way because that's not helpful to anybody. So she's going to be on Captain America's side. Well, we'll just have to tune in next week to see oh, if you're man. right. I'm going to be so embarrassed if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, you should be confident. 
Okay, Brad, it is time to drink from the river of forgetfulness. <laughs> Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, yeah. you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And we're going to do an episode on the Galactus Trilogy, the great Fantastic Four story that's coming up. We have uh, an interview with Erica Schultz talking about the deadliest bouquet right now. So great. And we have an interview that I so, so loved with Howard Wong and Josh Stafford about damned cursed children and that comic guys is great so is good. great uh but if you want to reach out and touch us electronically you can email the podcast cbccpodcast at gmail.com you can visit our website comicbookcouplescounseling.com or follow us on instagram and twitter at cbcc podcast you can give us the gift of five stars on apple podcasts and if you'd like to do an act of service why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, gang, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Were you expecting to cry so much this episode? I, t I totally was not.